Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. In an age where the USA is locked in a struggle between the forces targeting true racial equality and an amalgam of complacent structural racism along with white supremacy, it's vital to know the underlying ideas, beliefs, and worldview that keep African Americans threatened and marginalized. The thing is, while some might think that racism is just an individual issue, depending on the personal experiences and character of racist people, the history, facts, and statistical analysis point to racism as embedded in much of the theology of American Christianity. And who better to disentangle the religious foundations of racial segregation and subjugation than one raised as a true-believing, proud citizen of Dixie, a member of a Southern Baptist church? Robert P. Jones grew up in Mississippi, raised as a true believer, but found his way past the theological limits of his upbringing. Combining the skills of his Bachelor of Science degree in Computing Science and Mathematics with his Master's of Divinity and Ph.D. in Religion, Robbie has used rigorous statistical methods to trace the structures and extent of racism in American religion. He lays it out in clear, compelling prose in his latest book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. This is the fourth book by Robert P. Jones, and he is also the founder and CEO of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, which seeks to, quote, help journalists, scholars, pundits, thought leaders, clergy, and the general public to better debates on public policy issues and the important cultural and religious dynamics shaping American society and politics, unquote. White Too Long, in particular, explores the elements of theology born of the slavery-justifying Southern Evangelical Christianity, which has then infused the DNA of most— but not all, of this nation's Christianity. Black churches in particular emphasized different religious ideas and images, ignored or suppressed in white churches. So before I get Robert P. Jones on Zoom to talk about White No More, we're going to listen to a performance by the Golden Gospel Singers of O Freedom. O Freedom Oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me And before I'll be a slave I'll be buried in my grave And go home to my Lord and be free oh freedom
Robbie, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. You keep pretty busy with these things. You're working from home, I understand, taking care of a 10-year-old, uh, educational needs. That's right. Yeah, like everyone else, I think, you know, coping with uh, the new reality that uh, seems not so new anymore. And writing books. You're up to four books so far. White Too Long is only the most recent of the four that you've written. Could you say a, a few words about the previous three? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, prior to this, I had been really mostly writing with my social science hat on. So the last book prior to White Too Long was The End of White Christian America, where I was just describing really the demographic shifts in the country and how they have impacted the religious landscape. And we can say a little bit more about this later, but most prominently, just that we had moved in the last decade from being, demographically speaking, a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a majority white Christian country. And prior to that, I wrote a book called Progressive and Religious that was a look at progressive religious voices across the spectrum. That book was um, really interview-based, interviewed uh, nearly 100 religious leaders in Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism. And no Quakers. I don't think there was any Quakers in, in the list, unfortunately, <laughs> that I can remember. Uh, and then prior to that, it was a book on political philosophy and kind of intersection of political philosophy and sociology called Liberalism's Troubled Search for Equality, where I was looking at the tension between liberty and equality in uh, uh, kind of Western political philosophy. And the most recent one is called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And you're only looking at Christianity really here. I mean, you've got the, I don't know if it's a control group, it's the, the non-religious people in your studies. One of the things that kind of amazed me, I mean, your PhD is in religion from Emory, your MDiv is from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, 
And then your BS is in computing science and mathematics, which explains a certain number of chapters of the book that people will be dealing with. So you evidently meld together this scientific approach, mathematical approach with theological. I had the impression that you were headed towards a theological studies from a very young age, from what I read in White Too Long. Could you explain a little bit about that path? Because it's, it's certainly not everyone's path. Right. You know, in retrospect, I can make more sense of it than I did going forward at the time. I think that's true for many folks. But yeah, I mean, so I I grew up as a kid who went to church all the time. I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist in Mississippi, and my family was very connected to our our local church. I, you know, all the way through my teenage years, even, I was at church as many as five days a week. I mean, I was there for virtually everything. It was there, it was in the youth group. You know, I went to a Baptist college, so where I did major in, in math and computer science, but did so at a religious institution um, and chose that place very deliberately. And then toward the end of college, felt this need to deepen my theological understandings um, and was even thinking about going into the ministry. Um, So I went to the largest seminary in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and did an MDiv there. But then toward, I think, the end of that set of studies, realized that I really had kind of caught the academic bug and that that was going to be a better path for me. And so then went to Emory University um, in Atlanta to do my PhD there, which had a great program really in sociology of religion and theology and political theory. So I was able to kind of bring in some of the quantitative mathematical interests through the sociology piece and then my interest in kind of religion and politics, which has always been something that I've been interested in all together in one place. And that that's proven to be a pretty good foundation. And I've kind of, I think the trajectory is straighter from that point on. I'm pretty sure there are some religious people who think science is anti-religion. And I'd be interested in your perspective on that, because I think you're a religious person still. I think that's that's at the heart of what you want to do. But I also know that a lot of people say, well, you know, you go to college and you learn all these newfangled ideas and then you start becoming a doubter. Yeah, no, I certainly heard that even from one of my more devout neighbors. As I, even as I was heading off to a Southern Baptist seminary, actually, I, I heard, uh, you know, this kind of admonition about, you know, book learning, maybe threatening one's faith or spirituality. I haven't really found that to be the case. You know, I, I think what I found is that it's been a kind of a maturity process more than anything else. Um, so yeah, so I still consider myself a Protestant a Christian. And, you know, I think this new book, is not a book I would have written if I didn't care about the church and religion and its current state in the country. So these are things I'm still very deeply connected to and concerned about. And, you know, if anything, I think this book is a, you know, a book that is about uh, helping us and we white Christians find our way back to health after, I think, being sickened, really, by an infected one way of thinking about it. We're all thinking about the pandemic and and viruses, but, you know, I think there's a way in which we can think about this as, you know, white Christianity has being infected by white supremacy throughout most of its history. Um, And so I think this book is in many ways not a book that's about wanting to destroy Christianity or throw rocks, you know, from the outside, but really is written by someone who is very much on the inside. I mean, the first sentence in the book has the word I in it. The last sentence of the book has the word we and us. And it's, it's something I'm, I'm deeply concerned about. I would say that, you know, the mathematical training that I've had and, and in the social sciences has really 
I think allowed me to get a clearer picture of what's going on. And I, and I hope that's one of the things that the book does as well is to use current public opinion data. And this is really where we allow, you know, people to tell us in a systematic way what they believe, what they care about, what they're worried about, and then kind of report it out in a way that gives us a composite picture. You said you start out from Mississippi and that, you know, this is Southern Baptist. And I, I think was the last couple through few years, that's where Jimmy Carter, I think, stepped aside. He says he can't be a Southern Baptist anymore because there's theology there that's antithetical to what he believes. And so have you had to step aside from that? Are you still a Southern Baptist? Or you said you're a Protestant Christian, but yeah. So Jimmy Carter stepped aside from this, and I'm wondering about your path through this as you've added to, I think, your grasp on truth, which I, for me, that's kind of central to my religious view. If I'm not grasping truth, I'm just grasping uh, the nuggets passed on to me, the core beliefs of someone else, then possibly I'm being antithetical to what what God wants of us, right? So anyway, I'm wondering a bit about that journey for you. I mean, did you convince Jimmy Carter? Are you still a a Southern Baptist, or have you had to move to another place to find accommodation for your grasp of truth? Yeah, it's an interesting question. No, I think like Carter, um, I've had to move on from my Southern Baptist roots. I came pretty clear about that actually in seminary and the direction that the convention was moving, uh, I think was more and more about defending a partisan political position and, and less about the gospel and the, and kind of becoming part of a kind of Christian conservative political movement uh, seemed to be the animating force of it. Um, and, you know, um, that was a painful move. I think like, like many um, just, it, it was, you know, the denomination I grew up in, it was the denomination my family has been in for generations. I mean, we, we go back, I mean, I can trace my family roots back to middle Georgia, at least six generations uh, back. I, in fact, I have our family Bible from 1850 from Twiggs County, Georgia, where both sides of my family um, actually have been for more than 200 years with Baptist pastors, you know, kind of dotting the family tree along the way. So, I mean, this is very deep you know, history and heritage for me, but it, it was a, ultimately a, a place I couldn't stay. I still very much consider myself, you know, Protestant, Christian, kind of been to Methodist churches, you know, other, other kinds of Baptist churches beyond Southern, Southern Baptist churches. And then my wife is Jewish, so um, we've actually been attending an interfaith congregation for most of our time in D.C. And so it's certainly been, been a journey, but, but I think you're right about the journey is about, I think, finding a, a place of authenticity um, and a place where you can keep asking questions about truth. And in some ways, I think that's one way of thinking about this book is that I came to see, I think, in writing this book, that this problem actually goes much deeper and broader than Southern Baptist, right? Southern Baptist may be because it was a, con- it was a denomination formed very explicitly to justify slavery. Um, and it's kind of where I began the book. So in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was birthed really to be a denominational home for slave-owning missionaries. I mean, that was its very beginning and reason to be. It was the genesis story of my denomination, um, and one that I didn't know, actually, until I was in seminary. It was, that's, you know, I was in my 20s by the time I really understood that story. But, but that's not the only story. And I, I think the interesting thing that, or the, um, I guess, troubling thing as I've been doing the book research, is that it's how broad this defense of and commitment to, uh, you know, defending white supremacy went. 
well beyond Southern Baptists who were explicitly formed to defend slavery, but was kind of very broad throughout the mainline Protestant churches like Episcopalians or Presbyterians uh, and United Methodists, and also among white Catholics. Uh, it, it can be seen in public opinion data today. And if you really look at the history, that history is there. Um, and even though some of those churches were on the different side of, of the Civil War and on the question of slavery, they were not on a different side on the question of white supremacy. Well, you know, you mentioned the family roots back in Georgia. And so I would like to talk about something you actually encounter later in the book in White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. You tell the story of the two First Baptist churches of Macon. And I think that, that would, that's a wonderful story to start out with, actually. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about these two churches? Sure. In Macon, Georgia today, you know, which is still not a large uh, city, there are two First Baptist churches, and they sit right around the corner from one another. They're actually quite close. In fact, if they're kind of right angles to each other. If you, you could actually throw a golf ball from one parking lot to the other, you can see one steeple from the other, and, and they kind of back up to a park. Um, area that, that they both adjoin. And, you know, so that's a curious thing to come by. And it turns out that this is not some, you know, church marketing campaign gone awry, but actually the fact that they were uh, the same church back in 1825 um, when, they were, when they were founded. And uh, the original church had white slave owners bringing enslaved African Americans to church with them. Like that was the setup. Men whites would sit in the front, African Americans would sit in the back, and uh, in that same year, 1845, that the Southern Baptist Convention was formed explicitly, again, to justify uh, slave owning, that was the same year that this church uh, split and finally gave the African-American congregation, still enslaved people at that time, uh, their own church, but under white supervision. And then after the Civil War, and, and I should point out that they partially did this because uh, it was considered dangerous, right? Because there was a lot of tension around slavery and the Civil War was starting to heat up and the abolitionist movement uh, was heating up. And at that time, um, the enslaved people actually outnumbered the white slave owners in the, in the church. So they sort of removed them over to their own church, put them under supervision of a white pastor, uh, and, and actually still were counting them as members of their own church, even though they were in separate buildings. But, uh, and then uh, after the Civil War, the, um, the African-American church basically got its own independence. But then these two churches, with this you know, very fraught and shared history, sat there for 150 years, basically ignoring each other's presence, even though they were very, very close in proximity. And, and that was the situation until about seven years ago. And the two pastors, um, Reverend James Goolsby of the African-American Church and, and Reverend Scott Dickinson of the predominantly white church, finally got together and, you know, basically said to each other, like, what are, what are we doing? Like, you know, we have this history. We're right here in the same community and we don't know each other. And they basically set out on a very deliberate and in fact, a covenanted journey together, like promised to kind of go on this journey together. And it, it wasn't, you know, the kind of uh, pulpit swap kind of idea. And it, it also wasn't about merging the churches, but it was about building community uh, between the two churches. And so they began with potlucks and Easter egg rolls for the kids in the park that kind of adjoins the, the two churches and conversations. And I'll give just kind of one example of a difference um, that it made. And that was like when, when Dylan Roof, you know, shot down nine worshipers um, in Charleston, South Carolina, the, the pastor of the white church, you know, said to me when I was interviewing him, he said, look, you know, when that happened, I would like to think that we would have preached 
on that, that we would have had a service on that, that we would have reached out to our African-American brothers and sisters. But I honestly not sure we would have had we not already been in relationship, you know, with them. And so just the, the fact of kind of starting to build these things provided these organic opportunities then for the white church to kind of stand in solidarity with uh, their African-American neighbors. But something that certainly wouldn't have happened had they not began this very intentional, you know, journey of kind of building community together. So this has been maybe what, six, seven years, basically, they've been traveling together. Yeah. And again, this is not any kind of a merger of the two First Baptist churches of Macon. There's the white and the black, which still are autonomous, and they have a little bit of sharing, maybe doing a service together, but mostly they're having potlucks. They're meeting each other face to face, right? I don't suppose you did any studies of the congregations and the changes in their attitudes over the past six years. I just think that would be a, a wonderful example of potential that exists. Yeah, no, no, no formal study um, for sure. But you know, what's interesting is that if you kind of mark the journey, they've been able to handle, I think, more difficult and more complex situations than I think they ever would have at the beginning. And just and one other example I can give is that they, they both uh, recently planned a joint trip to Montgomery, Alabama to see the new museum there that's called the National Memorial for uh, Peace and Healing, but it, it's, it's a memorial for the victims of lynching in, in the country. So, you know, this is a very, very difficult subject, right, to kind of go together. So they boarded a bus all together, um, you know, some people from uh, African-American church, some people from the white church took this journey went to this museum together, came back and had, had a joint kind of conversation and worship service reflecting on that experience together. And, you know, I think this is, it's, it's very clearly changing people and it's providing conversations I think that would not have happened. You know, and, and one, I think particularly white uh, member, uh, a white man uh, who was very reluctant to go on this trip, when he finally was able to talk about it, you know, they said to him like, well, what's, what are you worried about? You know, like what, what is it that's, and, and he basically said, my hope and my fear are basically the same thing. And that is that I'll feel responsible. And that's something I've been kind of keeping at bay, you know. And in fact, you know, that was indeed the result, you know, that, that this kind of deep sense. Of, and I, I think it's what many white Christians have not quite internalized yet is, um, you know, when we hear, let's say one quick point on this, that when you hear like the, the words churches and civil rights, I think the first thing that many white Christians think about is African-American churches and the role that they played organizing the civil rights marches, serving as kind of hubs and organizing bases for that work for racial justice. But, you know, I, th I think when many white Christians think about church and civil rights, what they don't think about is the role that white churches played in upholding segregation and defending Jim Crow and defending kind of real estate redlining practices that kept neighborhoods segregated. I mean, these were all roles that white Christian churches very clearly played. But I think that's not something that I think many white Christians have reflected on and really felt responsible for um, and kind of come to a new place of understanding, I think, does put one face with, okay, so we are responsible. Now what? And folks, we are speaking with Robert P. Jones, uh, addressed as Robbie, because that's the name he goes by. He's the founder and CEO of PRRI, which is the Public Religion Research Institute. Their website, PRRI.org. 
org. Of course, the link is on nordenspiritradio.org, along with links to all of my guests of the past 15 years and a place for you to comment on and rate the programs. And there's all kinds of extra information that you should check out on nordenspiritradio.org. There's a donate button, which is how this full-time work is supported by you, not by corporations, not by government, but it has to come from you, the people. And I, I think that's a piece of our history that we too often lose of by and for the people. And uh, we depend on you, as do all of the community radio stations, uh, 40-some stations nationwide that carry our programming and much other wonderful program. Just remember to check out your and support your local community radio station. Robert P. Jones is here because he just released a book called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in Christian America. And there's some nitty gritty that I want to get into very shortly about racism, the correlation and the theological roots of racism in American Christian churches. I want to jump to that right away, Robbie. And one of those things is the racist index that you include include in the book based on some 15 questions. Explain the racist index. uh, Give us some examples of some of the questions that are involved and how this is a valid racist index, because I'm imagining there's some people going to take opposition to this rating. Sure. Well, you know, look, in the world of public opinion data, it's obviously very tricky and, and um, you have to be very careful about how you ask about very sensitive topics. I mean, not just anything, anything that's sort of sensitive, whether it's about race, about one's sex life, about drug abuse. And, you know, there's all kinds of that I think are used in public health and social sciences, but, but one does have to be fairly careful about it. So, you know, a couple of things that I did in sort of thinking about how to measure people's attitudes around, around race and racism one way to get at it is, is to not just ask one question. You obviously can't ask people um, if they consider themselves racist or bigoted. Um, no one's going to say yes to that question. So you have to figure out how to ask a number of questions that get at it sort of tangentially. And then if those questions hold together in a certain way um, or hold, hold together in kind of one direction or the other, it gives you kind of greater confidence um, in what you're measuring. So in the book, I, I used a, a range of questions that, um, and in fact, there were kind of 15 different questions that I used, as you said, um, in the racism index, and they cover a fair amount of ground. So one section of questions ask about, for example, Confederate symbols. Another uh, section of questions ask about racial inequality and African-American mobility and limits uh, to that. Um, Another section of questions ask about racial inequality and the treatment of African-Americans in the criminal justice system. Uh, And then finally, there was a a set of questions that were about perceptions of race, racism, and and just racial discrimination in the country itself. So what's remarkable, though, about these 15 questions um, is that they actually do hold together quite well. They're, They're very, very highly correlated. So one's answer on one question actually tends to correlate with, with one's answer on, on another question at a very, very high level. Just a couple of examples so you can get a sense of it. For example, one right out of uh, the news is uh, we asked about the killing of African-American men by police. And so the question there is, do you think that the recent killing of African-American men by police are part of a broader pattern of how police treat African-Americans, or do you just think that they are isolated incidents? And, you know, for example, in that question, what we find is that white Christian groups of all kinds, uh, white evangelicals, 
white mainline Protestants and white Catholics are about 25 percentage points more likely than whites who are not Christian and religiously unaffiliated to say that these are isolated incidents. In other words, they don't connect the dots. They don't see the systemic racism you know, in this and don't see the systemic connections uh, there. Uh, similarly, on the, on the question of Confederate flags, something else has been, um, you know, my home state of Mississippi has just voted to uh, remove the Confederate flag from its state flag over the summer. So that's something that's been in the news as well. Uh, on that question, very similar patterns. White Christians, again, all of the three major groups, white mainland Protestants, white evangelicals, and white Catholics, you know, are about 30 percentage points on that question, more likely to say uh, that they see the Confederate flag as a symbol of Southern pride rather than a symbol of racism, whereas majorities of white unaffiliated say they see it as a symbol um, of racism, as do African-Americans uh, here. So across all these questions, you know, what, what, in, what tends to show up is that if you ask the question, like, which white groups are closer to the views of African-Americans um, on these issues of race and, and racism, the answer is, is not white Christians. Um, the answer is whites who are not Christian, that is whites who are religiously unaffiliated, tend to be closer to the views of African-Americans on many of these questions. And what's underneath that, I think, is either an inability or an unwillingness to see systemic racism. That is the way that institutions and the ordering of society promotes racial um, inequality. Um, and that's something that we've kind of inherited from our past. I mean, whites tend to take anything they see in the news, like someone else getting shot by police as just one more isolated incident that isn't connected to anything else that has just happened. It's just something happens kind of in a bad and I think that's one of the fundamental challenges, I think, is that, you know, racism in its most powerful forms uh, and white supremacy, the flip side of it, and in its most powerful forms are not the views that people hold in their hearts. I think that's the way many white Christians tend to think about it. But they are, in fact, the ways that white Christians support an ordering of society that protects and values the lives of whites over the lives of African-Americans and other people of color. I want to divert a little bit into something that's kind of, that is personal experience for me. My father was a really good guy. I think almost everyone would describe him as friendly, uh, white or black with that. But I have no question but that he was racist. And uh, at a certain point where one of my sisters was involved with an African-American man, uh, he was quite verbal about the problems with that. He claimed that the issue was not against blacks, but it's that the races shouldn't mix. And I note that in your racism index, you don't have questions, I think, specifically addressing that. I was curious about that because I think that's a way, one of the ways that people hide their racism, you know, separate but equal, right? Why isn't that part of your index or is, would it have been a valuable part? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I didn't test every every single thing in here. I was and I was I was building this list out of a lot of the political science literature um, that has measured these things. And again, uh, the the challenge is, I think, to try to ask questions that hold together um, and questions that I think are measuring more structural issues is kind of what I wanted to kind of hang on to in, in the index. That one might might fit the bill. I mean, it's interesting. I might have to kind of test it, you know, down the road. What it is making me think of, though, is that um, it, it fits with a larger theological worldview, right? And that is a kind of not only a separation of the races, but a hierarchical arrangement of that separation, right? So those two things go together, right? So the races should be separate. And, you know, that was a very fundamental 
teaching in white Christian churches, you know, read back into the Bible, either through the curse of Ham or the mark of Cain. Uh, so it has deep, deep theological roots. And, and what's, what often went unsaid, uh, but that was very much true, is that with that separation was a hierarchy, right? And whites were kind of traced their lineage to Adam and Eve, right? The kind of original couple uh, in, in the biblical text. And inevitably, uh, what happened was people with dark skin, Africans and others, traced their lineage to basically a criminal act, right? And punishment uh, in, in the scriptures, right? You mean where Cain kills Abel? Right. So in the biblical text, where Cain kills Abel, like, and then Cain is marked in the text. Now, the text doesn't say he was marked by changing his skin to be dark, right? I take this personally. I am Mark, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was marked at birth. <laughs> right, right. So, but, you know, but it's it's notable that, that that means that there is a kind of pedigree that whites have, right, uh, by not going through that lineage that everyone else doesn't have. So so not only is it a differentiation, uh, but it, it it is a kind of sublimation or, um, or a kind of putting whites over blacks in the way that that story is told. It's been a very powerful trope. Through again, through I mean, only recently, I think in the last fifty years, has that stopped being teach as a fundamental Christian teaching, and it, it's still kind of under the hood uh, for a lot of Christian theology today. Well, and then there's the question of what color Jesus was. Would he have been white in our sense of European white, or would he have been brown? Would he have been black or somewhere close to there? Because he's, after all, he is from a different continent. Yeah, well, he's a Jew. Uh, He's from the Middle East. His skin tone would certainly not be near mine. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly light skinned and, and mostly from England and Wales. It's, it, it is remarkable, um, you know, that the, the sort of light skinned or white Jesus um, is also, yeah, absolutely, you know, part of this, uh, part of this trope, and and, and that uh, it's worth digging into. If folks are curious. I mean, there's been a, a several decent articles written about the kind of archetype portrait that hangs on a lot of white Christian churches' walls, and even some African-American churches' walls, actually, um, is actually a Swedish. <laughs> it was actually, uh, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, it was painted for a, a Swedish youth magazine. And so he's very literally blonde-haired and blue-eyed and light-skinned, and it really took off, and it was actually printed by the millions and, hand, and, and given out as little postcards to soldiers heading off to war in World War II. Um, that's where it really took off. But it's been one of the most replicated portraits of any kind uh, in the world. But it has this very normative implication, right, that Jesus looked like Northern European in his appearance. And that has theological implications, you know, to it as well, right? If, if you look like him, then you're closer, literally closer to the Son of God than if you, than if you don't. Hey folks, we are speaking with Robert P. Jones, and it's necessary to say the middle initial because there's a lot of Robert Jones in the world. The best way to find him is through the website for Public Religion Research Institute. Their website is prri.org. He's the founder and CEO. And I want to right now give a little shout out. Uh, thanks to both Jordan and Sean for helping connected me up with you. And then the research institutes without which the book would be missing its core. People like Diana, Ian, and Natalie 
who help bring together this information, formulate it, the statistical models that make this not just a gathering of opinion, it's actual research about the attitudes and the beliefs. And then, of course, the analysis, which you, Robbie, do about the history and the theology. And that's what I'd like to dive into now, because you've already mentioned, I think it's about 1845, the split in Southern Baptists, they split off from the Main Baptist Church. The Quaker meeting, and I'm part of for 12 years, rented from American Baptist here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And so I have a little bit more exposure to other forms of Baptist than just the Southern Baptist. I've even sensed, by the way, an improvement in some of the theology, from improvement from my point of view, uh, of the Southern Baptist Church over the last few years. So I, I'm kind of hopeful for that. But when the church is split, and I, there's this north-south split in a number of Christian churches around the Civil War, that there's a theology that is encouraged. So could you tell me how the theology of those in the South changed such that it supported racism? Well, you know, what's interesting is that the split, I want to be careful here, because the split was actually over slavery. It was not over white supremacy. And I think that's something that I became, uh, I wasn't actually that clear on until I really did the research for the book. Um, You know, that I I kind of had conflated slavery and white supremacy as the thing that was split. And I read a lot of Frederick Douglass's work, who was uh, obviously one of the prominent abolitionist voices, African-American abolitionist voices leading up to the Civil War. But his writings after the Civil War, I think, were really instructive for me. He was greatly dismayed that, like, I think he thought this too. He thought that white supremacy would die with slavery. And he was dismayed at how the question of slavery hardly moved the question of white supremacy, right? Um, and and so this that that was the big split, was this overt practice of slavery, and so, you know, and, and virtually every denomination split, the Methodist split, the Presbyterian split, the Episcopalian split. I mean, it was everyone split. And the, the Baptists never mended the rift. The American Baptists that you mentioned are the descendants of that northern uh, part of the Baptists that rejected slavery. And the Southern Baptists are the kind of descendants of those who, who said that it, it was compatible with Christianity. What's notable, though, is that that Southern Baptist group is the group that grew the most. So by the middle of the 20th century, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination of any kind in the country by the middle of the 20th century. And so the group that was sort of built to justify slavery is the group that came to dominate white American Christianity all the way up through the middle of the 20th century. But the other thing to say is that, going back to Douglas real quickly, um, he was he was really distraught that many of his people he thought of as abolitionist allies, once the issue of slavery was off the table, were no longer his allies on the issue of white supremacy. Going to the Bible, and you don't talk about this again in the book quite too long. One of the problems I have with a lot of Christianity interpretation of, they kind of leave Jesus, you say a relationship with Jesus, but then they pass on Paul's words. And Paul passes on very few of Jesus's words, which is a little bit weird since he's hanging around with people and supposedly he's passing on the theology of Jesus. So I read the Sermon on the Mount and related things, you know, it's the in Matthew, in chapter 25 of Matthew, the goats and the sheep and, and getting sorted out and what basis that happens on. 
those seem to me kind of central, but Paul never doesn't talk about those things. So my question is, is there some theology that Paul gives that Jesus didn't give that wasn't part of his route, which enables this white supremacy, the racist attitudes? So in the book of Exodus, you get the Ten Commandments, you get their enslavement, but you don't get their uh, liberation from enslavement. And in the New Testament, what you get is you do get some Paul, um, you get slaves obey your masters from Ephesians, and you get some of the Gospels. But what you don't get, interestingly enough, is another you know, passage from Galatians, uh, Galatians 3, where it talks about there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, we are all one uh, in Christ Jesus, that's gone. Right. So I think just that little artifact, um, you know, tells you a lot really about this approach to scripture that really did use it as a tool for oppression, you know, rather than a a tool for for liberation. And it is that kind of selectivity. So whether it's selecting, prioritizing Paul over the gospels or selecting, you know, one piece of Paul over another piece of Paul, there is a kind of selectivity going on there that is all about propping up the current status quo and the current status quo for most of American history has been a society that is built to, you know, benefit the the lives of whites over others. I was curious, maybe we should get to the meat and potatoes of the book in, in one sense, that is the statistical analysis. Again, Diane, Ian, Natalie all had a part in this. You certainly had a part in the tabulation, the, the racism index and the attitudes that are related to this based on, or and, and it can be done in the other direction as well, based on your religious affiliation or how much your religious affiliation causes your racism. I mean, it, you, you do the research, you do the analysis to say it goes both ways, right? So uh, part of what I'm, I want to ask about is uh, you, you identify it with, what, four major groups, Right. Uh, spell out again, and you've already alluded to it, but spell out what what the groups were and what you found. So again, I was using the racism index that we discussed earlier, um, but I standardized that, kind of created a composite index and standardized that score on a, basically one way of understanding is a scale of one to 10, uh, with 10 being holding more racist views and one being hold least racist views um, on the index. And what I found was um, when I looked at the major white Christian subgroups, and again, the ones I was using were white evangelical, white mainline Protestant, white Catholics, comparing them to whites who were not Christian or, or specifically whites who are religiously unaffiliated. So when I compared those groups, again, this remarkable pattern appears. So it's perhaps not that surprising, given the, the history of white evangelicals who are heavily kind of anchored in the South, uh, that they score eight out of 10. Um, on this racism index. Uh, But what's perhaps more surprising is that white mainline Protestants, who are really more populous in the Midwest and Northeast, scored seven out of 10. uh, And white Catholics also scored seven out of 10, who are more urban, uh, more Northeastern, typically. Uh, And so it's all white Christian groups scoring at least seven out of 10 on this racism index. And if you compare those to whites who are religiously unaffiliated, they only score four out of 10. And, and they're much closer to the views of African-Americans who only score two um, out of 10 um, on, this, on this index. So, you know, one, you might say, well, okay, well, maybe there are alternative explanations for that. But in the book, I went ahead, I ran a bunch of statistical models checking for other things like, okay, maybe it's that there's higher Republican partisanship, or maybe it's about gender, maybe it's about income, maybe it's about region. 
Uh, maybe it's more about urban versus rural, you know, living patterns. Even with checking for, you know, all of these things and putting controls in the model for all these alternative explanations, this relationship still stands up. This in, So there's an independent relationship then between holding more racist views and identifying as white and Christian. And then I did flip it around the other way to say, okay, well, does it work in reverse, right? Can you predict uh, holding more racist attitudes if you start with white Christian identity? Um, and it turns out that the model holds up in both directions, even with all these controls in place. And that is that if you look to say, okay, well, if I, if I start with white Christian identity, it turns out that being white and Christian independently predicts a 10% increase in holding more racist views in the country. And then finally, I think the one that is really more, I think the most unsettling to me, and, and you know, we triple checked to kind of just because it, it was, I think, not what most white Christians would expect is, is the effect of church attendance. Because I think the other objection would be, well, maybe these are just Christians in name only that haven't really been to church. They haven't really been discipled. They haven't really been formed, uh, you know, in Christian discipleship. And so I checked to see uh, about the role that religious attendance had. And at best, religious attendance had no effect on this relationship. So the, the relationship was just as strong uh, between holding more racist views and identifying as white and Christian among both high attending and low attending uh, groups. It really didn't make any difference. Uh, the one exception for that is if I look at white evangelical Christians, it, the, it turns out that going to church more often actually made things worse. That is, made, made one hold more racist views. Um, so that uh, that connection between holding racist views and identifying as a white evangelical was actually stronger among those who went to church more often than it was to those who went less often. One of the things about your findings that surprised me was about Catholics. Not that I thought Catholics historically were not racist, uh, because certainly I experienced some of that growing up. And uh, by the way, I've experienced a whole lot of Catholics who are not, from my point of view, racist. So uh, this is not a blanket statement. But what I was thinking was, because over the past 10, 20, 30 years, the Catholic Church has become increasingly Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking that that would have had a moderating effect on the racism implicit in, in Catholicism in the U.S. Did you see any effect like that? Is there any evidence to that effect? Yeah, no, it turns out it has not had that effect. Um, you know, and I, I think there may be a couple of alternative explanations for that is that, you know, the what you might call the browning, you know, of the Catholic Church over the last you know, few decades. I think one thing to say about it is it's not always a welcome. Uh, thing among many white Catholics, right? I mean, it is the way that that the Catholic Church has maintained its percentage of the population. Um, you know, like if we go back in the 1990s, for example, the ratio of white to non-white Catholics was about 10 to 1. Um, and today it's about 60-40, and it's headed toward 50-50. Um, we're almost at a point where Latino Catholics are at parity with white Catholics. And in fact, in the Southwest and West, um, Latino Catholics already outnumber uh, white Catholics in the, in the West and the Southwest. Uh, but I think this is not, even though it is sort of helping the Catholic Church survive, um, really, as, as because the number of white Catholics have been shrinking, uh, it's not, I think it is also not always a welcome, uh, you know, shift uh, among, I mean, I certainly know, you know, in the, uh, in the South, I, I know several Catholic churches where, in fact, that shift has caused a great amount of tension over, like, what, what Mass is going to look like, and, and I kid you not, what color the fellowship hall is going to get painted. You know, it, it is a cultural, theological. I mean, it hasn't always been a smooth transition. 
I was curious, you know, this has been a a face-off about evangelical Christians, primarily also the mainline Christians and the Catholics, but there's also black evangelicals, and there's certainly a, a large number of them, I think. So is their theology, this DNA that you refer to, is their theology different than the theology of the white evangelical Christians? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for the most part, yes, um, but not thoroughly. As I mentioned, I mean, there are still African-American churches that have a picture of a white Jesus hanging on the wall, you know, that they've inherited really from white uh, Christianity. And I think there's a whole strain of kind of prosperity gospel uh, African-American churches that also kind of inherit um, a certain amount from white um, evangelical theology. But I think by and large, by necessity, you know, African-American evangelicals, and, and, and it is true that, that most African-American Protestants do identify as evangelical, uh, but, but they mean something different, you know, by that theologically than whites do. And so you'll hear a, a kind of theology of liberation, and, and Exodus gets a lot of attention, right, um, in black churches in a way that it really doesn't, uh, you know, get, get a lot of attention in, in many white churches. I mean, the way that Exodus gets treated in African-American churches I think is much more similar to the way it gets treated in synagogues than it is the way it gets treated in, in white Christian churches. Right. I'm thinking that the hymns are completely different. I w- I'd be interested in seeing the list of hymns that happen in black versus white evangelical Christian tradition. Yeah, probably not of Wash Me and I Will Be Whiter Than Snow getting sung in African-American <laughs> churches. Uh, with my beard, I feel, I feel convicted of being too super white. Folks, there's much more that we could cover here with Robbie. We have been speaking with Robert P. Jones, who is founder and CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute. Their website, PRRI, his latest book is White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. You could also pick up his previous book, The End of White Christian America, and the other two. There's a lot of wonderful writings that he's done. There's wonderful work and research doing, combining both theology and statistical and analysis so that we're actually getting to toward truth. So please remember to check out White Too Long. There's a link on northernspiritradio.org. And so Robbie, I appreciate so much this work you're doing, lifting people towards truth. I think it's one of the most noble causes that we could have, much better than the theology of the lost cause that you talk about in the book. There's so much good that you're doing through your work. I'm thankful that you're combining this statistical, hard, clear thinking with the theology that has led to a split in our nation and some really horrid injustices. I thank you for pursuing that work and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Again, folks, their website, prri.org, and my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you can find that link to Robert P. Jones and all the folks at the Public Religion Research Institute. Andrew Jansen helped with production of today's program, and I'm going to share one more song with you on the way out. It's by the Michael Gunger Band, and it's called White Man. So you can already guess at its relevance. Enjoy this last song, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. God is not a man. God is not a white man. 
God is not a man sitting on a cloud. God cannot be bought. God will not be boxing. God will not be owned by religion. But God is love. God is love. And he loves everyone. God is love. God is love. And he loves everyone. is not a man God is not an old man and God does not belong to Republicans and God is not a flag not even American and God does not depend on a government but God is good Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every